0: An hour of the Armstrong and Getty show to tune in because we have Tim the lawyer here Tim Sandifer has been joining our show now for
3: 13 years. Great yeah, really? Shot. Wow. You were a child then. I can't believe it's been that long. I was just uh, I was just looking at uh, some things that feel like yesterday and were actually a long time ago. My wife and I have decided to start watching Star Trek the Next Generation on Netflix cuz she missed about half the show when it was originally on. Good to know. the first episode of that show was 32 years ago now. Oy, which means that Uh, that the show was a lot closer to the original series than we are to that show now. Oh, that's interesting.
1: The the original Star
3: Trek was only 20 years old when that show first
1: aired. Uh, uh, Tim, aside from being a Star Trek historian, is the (laughs) vice president for litigation at the Goldwater Institute, Tim Sandifer. So, uh, Tim, we know you're working on some really exciting and and fun stuff right now, and we want to talk about that. But we have a couple of general constitution-y questions. All right. That we wanted to chat. I wonder chat what you
0: just because you're a guy who's read a lot about the founding and the Constitution and all those things. Oh, that's what you do. Um, um, what are your thoughts on impeachment in general? Not the particulars sure. of this one, but just the removal of a president from office.
3: I think that the, the founding fathers expected us to use impeachment a lot more, a lot more than we do. Hmm. And of course, not just presidents, but judges also. And uh, they would be shocked that in the history of the United States, there have been so very few impeachments of people who have abused or arguably abused their offices because impeachment is a political process. Impeachment is a constitutional political process. It really drives me crazy that partisans in the media refer to impeachment as a coup or as trying to undo the election. No, impeachment is a political process that if the... If the constituents want it, then they should get it, and that's that's what the system is designed for and and we have come close but not actually convicted presidents in in the impeachment process because there wasn't actually that kind of political pressure for it so
0: now judges i don't know i don't know what uh, how many judges are judges for yeah, life
3: neither
0: do i uh, are a lot of judges judges for oh, life or is uh, that just the supreme, all, supreme court
3: all article 3 federal court judges are so judges for life the, the
0: article for well, impeaching for them good
3: behavior i should
0: say the article the argument for impeaching them makes a little more sense than that you know it's the only way you can get them out of there
3: yeah. if you think they're corrupt right. whereas with a
0: president uh, or an elected official you can wait till the next election
3: and it does happen that that uh, federal judges are impeached but you know when you can when you just look at the numbers it's just not plausible that uh, we've been using impeachment as often as we ought to
0: mm. so you think it would have been more um, uh, I, I wonder if maybe we don't go through a period here where we just constantly are impeaching yeah no,
3: i and i and I don't see anything inherently wrong with that because the system is supposed to balance parties against each other in order to protect the the individual. You know the whole system of checks and balances is is designed to keep the political branches at each other's throats, and that's a blessing that's a benefit to us. You know people talk about gridlock. they use the term gridlock. gridlock is a feature, not a bug the the system is designed to to counteract each branch so that the people can go about their about their business in peace and safety you want an efficient government where these the the fools who are in office can get what they want done immediately that would be a horrifying alternative no the the we're better off with the political parties duking it out and accomplishing nothing by the end of the day because then we can go about our our lives pursuing happiness and and being with our families and running our businesses and and minding our own business. I mean, that's what the, the Constitution was designed to do. So there's a lot of discussion about what's an impeachable offense.
1: We started our talk show roughly coincident with the, the whole Clinton impeachment mess, and there's there's bribery and treason and high crimes and misdemeanors, and everybody argues about what that means. Um, I understand they were vague, so it would cover things they couldn't, Anticipate, but what about incompetence? What if you just think, and a lot of people think the president sucks?
0: That's kind of impeachable. That's kind of what they did with Andrew Johnson, was just the idea he sucks. Let's throw a whole bunch of stuff at him.
3: And he really did. I mean, he really should have been thrown out of office. No, uh, absolutely incompetence is an impeachable offense. Of course it is. It has to be. You couldn't possibly have a constitutional system where a president, let's say, in the first year of office goes crazy or something and just decides to randomly do all sorts of terrible things and there's nothing you can do about it, of course impeachment exists in order to remove people who are unfit for office. Are you we- talking
0: about like, switching us to the metric system or something crazy better? Like <laughs> True <laughs> horrors, yes.
3: My car gets 15 rods to the hog's head and that's the way I like it. <laughs> The the, uh, impeach, or I mean, uh, uh, gross incompetence is an impeachable offense because it's a political crime. It's a danger, a a serious threat to the safety and security of the people of the United States if the president is dangerously incompetent. And so, of course, that is an impeachable offense. But they specifically did
0: not go with the term maladministration or whatever they were talking about at the time.
3: That's true. But also, you know, what. What the founders chose not to include is of limited value when interpreting the Constitution, because there's lots of stuff they chose not to include. And there's a lot of reasons why they might have chosen not to include something. So perhaps they didn't include terms like maladministration because they thought that was covered sufficiently by the language (laughs) that they did use. (laughs) So it's always of limited value to say, well, the founders chose not to include something. Maybe that's a helpful argument. Maybe not. But what we do know is that historically speaking and just as a matter of common sense, Removing a person from office because that person is dangerously incompetent is obviously within what the Founding Fathers intended when they wrote the Constitution. I'm not saying that that's the the situation today. I'm talking about what the Founding Fathers thought at the time they were writing the Constitution. Tim
1: Sanford is the VP for litigation at the Goldwater Institute. Uh, the Second Amendment is also another aspect of the Constitution, part of the Constitution that seems to vex people for because it's it's vague. Um, would the Constitution have been better if they'd made it two or three times as long
2: <laughs> or
3: shorter? <laughs> So at the fa- at the writing of the Constitution there were a lot of people who were opposed to including a bill of rights including James Madison and James Wilson who were two probably the two smartest guys at the Constitutional Convention and Alexander Hamilton too. They were opposed to including a bill of rights at all because they said look the constitution only allows the government to do the things that we've listed on this piece of paper and
1: that's <laughs> it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. It's only-
3: that's it. They, they, all they can do is what's listed here. And if we put in there in, – if we write a bill of rights that say, by the way, you have the right to freedom of speech and the right to freedom of property, blah, 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 blah then what's going to happen is people are going to forget that the federal government only has the power to do the things that are listed on this piece of paper. That's a pretty good argument, it turns out. That's right. And if you accidentally leave something out, people will think that you purposely left it out. There you go. So they said, if we write a bill of rights that leaves out that you have a right to run barefoot through sprinklers on a hot summer day, you might have people out there who say, well, you don't have a right to run barefoot uh, through sprinklers on a hot summer day because it's not in the Constitution. And sure enough, that is today how a large number of people read the Constitution. So it's arguable that we would have been better off without a bill of rights because that would have forced people to face the fact that the federal government has limited powers. That I, is really interesting. I don't by itself buy that argument, but it's an interesting argument.
1: Is there anything uh, in the Constitution about becoming the world's largest insurance company? Um, a redistributor of wealth?
3: N- there is nothing in the Constitution that authorizes the federal government to do those things.
1: No, no, I thought not. All right then. So uh, let's talk about what you're doing these days. What to, what are well, you hot to trot about?
3: We have a big case we're going to be asking the Supreme Court to take this month uh, that involves whether lawyers can be forced to join bar associations. And this hmm. is a this is a very important issue. So for a long time now, lawyers have been forced not just to pass the bar exam. I'm not talking about the bar exam. You have to pass the exam and you get licensed. You get sworn in, then you're a lawyer. That's a different thing. A lot of states, about 20 states, I'm sorry, about 30 states today. Now, force lawyers to join bar associations, which are private clubs. They're basically labor unions for lawyers. Are you in one? And I am a member of the Arizona State Bar Association. They call it the Arizona State Bar. But it's a a private trade organization that I'm required every year to pay $500 or so to. And they spend this money on political activities. They lobby the legislature. They take political positions on things. State bar associations do this all over the country. Uh, even though I disagree with that, they're forcing me to subsidize political speech that I disagree with. And you disagree we, with some of their positions. Oh yes, and this is now you might think, you know, and whether you did
0: or not, I'm not sure. You should be forced to uh, subsidize oh, absolutely. this.
3: Absolutely, and and listeners might think, well, who cares about the first amendment rights of lawyers themselves? And this is very important because bar associations have a lot of political influence. With state legislatures, because state bars lobby, and they get a lot of influence, and they get listened to a lot at the state, at the state level. And I, in the media. i never
1: noticed that in California. Well, <laughs> and, and in the media view of it, the media
0: regularly throws around whichever bar association believes this as if, well, then that settles
3: it. Yeah, as if that's they speak for the entire legal right, profession, right. and they don't. So we have sued over this issue in several states, in Louisiana, in Oklahoma, in Oregon. There are cases going on in Wisconsin and Texas, and we're doing a case in North Dakota that we're asking the U.S. Supreme Court to take and to hold that lawyers cannot be forced to join bar associations and subsidize their political activities, just like the Supreme Court has already said, you cannot be forced to join a labor union and subsidize its political activities against your will. How hard is that test, the bar? Uh, the bar exam itself, that it is, it's the, certainly the hardest test I ever took. How
0: long does it take you?
3: Well, these kids, today, or hours or... These kids today have no <laughs> idea how good they have it. When I took the bar exam, the California bar exam is a three-day exam. Three days. The, the, and the Arizona bar exam was and still is a two-day exam. I believe California is now only two days. But it is a very demanding test.
0: And um, uh, could you pass it today, or is it the sort of thing you need to study up for at that time?
3: I would, I would have to study up for it, and I was in a bad situation because I took it in California 15 years ago, and then I had to retake it in Arizona two years ago when I oh. moved there. So it is a, uh, it, yeah, it was tough to go, have to go back over that stuff and relearn it.
0: Is it, is it like word searches, two pictures, what's the
3: difference between these two pictures <laughs> sort of things? Well, the answer is no, but actually to, to get into law school, you have to take another test the LSAT, and the LSAT actually does have something kind of like that. The LSAT exam is a lot of logic puzzles. It's stuff like, you know, you have a chicken and a wolf and a bag of seed, and you have to cross the the river in a canoe, and you Uh. can only have two in the same canoe at the same time. That that kind of question is on the LSAT exam. Do you have to go to law school to take the bar? uh not in every state but, but some in most states you just states.
0: any rando could uh study up there on their own
3: and s- there are some states that's why Lincoln did it didn't he, he just study uh, up yeah, on own. yeah randos own. like lincoln <laughs> california jack california is the is i think the only state where you can take the bar exam without having gone to law school Mm. And every few year, a few people pass the bar exam having studied on their wow. own. Very few. Wow. And, of course, it's very hard to get a job sure. if you do that. Yeah. But it is possible. But and I can start suing people,
1: that would be fun. In in
0: some yeah. states,
3: If you graduate from law school, you are automatically a member of the bar in a few oh. states.
1: Gotcha. Among the fine uh, books that Tim Sandover has written, uh, the recent The Ascent of Jacob Bronowski, uh, which we talked to Tim about on a podcast, right? That's right. At some point. Uh, yeah, very, very good. Uh, Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man, which is absolutely terrific. The Permission Society, which we helped inspire, finally inspired something positive in the world. Um, And The Right to Earn a Living, one of my faves about uh, economic freedom, which is uh, another forgotten notion these days. Very much so. Yeah. Anyway, we'll have a link to all that stuff for you. We'll be back with Tim to talk more uh, liberty and Constitution and stuff like that in moments. On the Armstrong and Getty Show.
0: Excuse for why she's failing, coming up in Marshall's News in about 10 minutes. Before that, we got Tim, the lawyer, in the studio, Tim Sandifer,
1: Vice President for litigation at the Goldwater Institute, where they busily fight for liberty. Perhaps you've heard of it. Uh, what have you guys uh, been doing lately? A couple of wins, huh?
3: Yeah, we won a couple of cases, in, one in Florida and one in California, involving home sharing, you know, where people allow people to stay in their homes, like on Airbnb or HomeAway or something like that. And a lot of communities across the country are trying to violate people's private property rights by telling them that they're not allowed to do that and imposing these blanket bans and, and, and so forth. So we, this is an issue that, that we've really taken on at the Goldwater Institute, and we won a case in uh, Pacific Grove, California, just recently, where the court there said that that violated the California Coastal Act. Now, that's interesting because the California Coastal Act says that the Coastal Commission has the authority to set the rules for how people use their land along the coast, and usually they're very anti-private property rights, environmentalist radicals. But in this case, they actually like home sharing because it's a way of allowing people to to, to spend the weekend and enjoy the, the beach without building new hotels and mm-hmm. things like that. So they're actually rather pro-home sharing. So they've said that they don't want cities to outlaw people allowing, uh, allowing people to use their homes. So we won that case uh, in the trial court recently, and we won an even bigger case in Florida where they were – Uh, That community in uh, Miami-Dade County was prohibiting people from using their homes for short-term rentals with these incredibly exorbitant fines, like hundreds of thousands of of dollars per violation, which we said violated the constitutional prohibition on excessive fines because both the federal and state constitutions prohibit the government from imposing these excessive fines. And fortunately, Florida state law also uh, said the same thing. It set the number, the amount of fines that cities are allowed to levy. And the court said that that was uh, illegal, That the, what the city was doing, and struck down the entire ordinance. So we're we're still doing some cases in places like Illinois, for example, where Illinois Chicago's rule on home sharing is you have to get a license, and when you get a license, among other things, the city is allowed to search your property quote at any time and oh. for any reason. Oh, that and, seems quote, fair. Wow, <laughs> that's reasonable. You know, yes, a, let's go ahead and suspend amendments. And, and we're not ta- and not, you know we're talking about people's homes here. You know, so it's it's even more extreme than that. It's just incredible. So uh, unfortunately, this is one of those situations where NIMBYism and and this this, it, this basic fundamental premise people have that they have a right to tell other people how to live their lives is so deeply rooted that even people that you talk to who normally say, well, I'm in favor of private property rights and limited government and the Constitution – well, uh, many of them will even turn around and say, well, but I have a right to tell my neighbor what he can do with his land. Mm-hmm. Now, we're not saying that, that people should be allowed to have loud party ho- houses or something like that. Of course, the city should be able to crack down on nuisances, on noise and things like that. But you don't ban all backyard barbecues just because sometimes people get a little rowdy or, or make it illegal to have a Super Bowl party just be, in, in the entire city just because sometimes one or two people have uh, you know too much parking on the street or something. But that's the way this is being approached nationwide. And it's a real shame. Because home sharing is good for local economies. it brings tourists into into towns to patronize local businesses and restaurants that otherwise would never go. i mean i've I've done this. I was in I, we took a vacation to New Orleans not long ago and stayed in a, at a home sharing at a, at a home. and we we went all to, to all these little local restaurants and things. We would have never gone there if we sure. had stayed at the big hotel downtown. So this is another situation where trying to dictate to other people how they use their property and how they live their lives is also bad for the economy and bad for, for people who need home sharing to pay their bills. You Do you know? lift
0: up your shirt and get some beads in New Orleans? <laughs> you know, I probably could. The way
3: I stopped
0: at McDonald's so much nowadays, what's, I'm really going to watch it. What's your Twitter feed? Because you got one of my, the best Twitter feeds out there. Uh,
3: it's my, my full name, at Timothy Sandifer, which I probably should have shortened because it takes up too many... Yeah. Letters.
0: Well, it's, it shows up on our Twitter feed a lot. And I'm glad you fight for, uh, do you ever consider doing slip and falls when you I got never, into law? No, I went to law <laughs> school because
3: I wanted to sue the government. It's the best oh, job yeah. in the world. I, believe I would do it for free if I had to. In fact, I sort of do because I don't charge my clients. And, by the way, we are supported entirely by donations from people who agree with the things that we do. We're having our big annual gala dinner in Phoenix oh, on love Friday. A gala. Yeah. And if, if folks out there, if any of you would like to come along, go to goldwaterinstitute.org. You can find out about the, the dinner on Friday. You can find out about the stuff that we do. We have a blog where we follow all, that, all the stuff that that we're engaged in across the country, goldwaterinstitute.org.
0: Tim is going to stick around for a little bit, and I have some questions about some of the uh, stories of the day and how they fit into uh liberty and freedom and the law and that sort of thing. Marshall's got his news in just a few minutes, and we'll check out on where we are with uh, the latest on all the dang stories that we're following. Dang stories. Democratic race and impeachment and whatnot. On the Armstrong. Radio you Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Just got a text from somebody who said they uh, read Tim's Frederick Douglass book recently and really enjoyed it. That's right. Uh, Tim Sandiford's written a number of books, and he's on our show today. We're going to talk to him a little more coming up. But right now, we've got the news with Marshall Phillips.
2: Now, President Trump was in Kentucky last night. He had a big rally there, stumping for the GOP. He also shared the stage for a few minutes with Republican Senator Rand Paul. Who told and they, I haven't seen the
0: picture. I understand that uh, Rand looked like a like mini-me standing next to you. Look they looked like a comedy duo yeah. from the black and white era. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. I didn't realize Rand uh, is a, a slighter man, and Trump is a giant. He's a very, very large man. Well, so.
1: don't forget, Rand had his ribs crushed by a crazed Frenchman, too, so he's probably kind of a little cringy. Boy, he, he is much, much larger. Yeah. As, as if, what are we, cavemen over here? It's the size of a man's intellect, Jack, and his spirit that matters.
2: Anyway, Rand was uh, telling a cheering crowd it is time to name... He to lower the mic down yeah. like he's at the kids' table. Yeah. All right, that's yeah. enough. That's enough uh,
1: height-shaming.
2: <laughs> Rand uh, telling a cheering crowd it's time to name the whistleblower that sparked the House impeachment inquiry. We also now know the name of the whistleblower. The whistleblower needs to come before Congress as a material witness because he worked for Joe Biden... At the same time, Hunter Biden was getting money from corrupt oligarchs. I say tonight to the media, do your job and print his name.
1: Do your job and clean up your long clippings.
0: huh? Yeah, I just I don't get the the emphasis on the whistleblower at this point. The whistleblower alerted us to the phone call and uh, the deal that Trump was attempting to make. And uh, now that's out there. The whistleblower accomplished whatever the whistleblower was trying to accomplish. I just don't see the role of the whistleblower being that big a deal at
1: this point. Now politically, I get it. They're trying to make the whistleblower look bad just to impugn the general, uh, the uh, the investigation general. But yeah, I don't. I don't think it's relevant. What's Rand Paul up to? Is he trying to burnish his populist credentials? Because he's still pretty young. He could have another shot at the presidency, right? I don't think he wants to run for president. I think
0: he got in uh, because of he wanted to have that part of the foreign policy conversation right. on the stage. Okay. I don't think he's a guy that ever expects to be president. Okay. I think. All right. Um, but he likes Trump's foreign policy. But, Guy, you go back to uh, the 2016 primary when they are all running and everybody thought Trump was a joke. Mm-hmm. And he said incredibly mean things about Rand Paul. Yeah. Called him ugly and just all kinds of, like, really odd... <laughs> Yeah. thanks, and yes. then you know and same with Lindsey Graham he gave out Lindsey Graham's cell phone number right. and, and said Ted Cruz's dad killed the president yeah there's three examples right Chris Christie would be another one of them there's a whole bunch of guys that if you'd have said at that time someday you're going to be on a stage boosting this guy as president they'd have thought one he's never going to be president and two I would never be on stage helping him out I think
1: strange time
0: and now some of his biggest cheerleaders he's got are Chris Christie. Rand Paul and Lindsey Graham. Stockholm Syndrome. That's my theory.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Politics is interesting. (laughs) Democrat presidential hopeful Kamala Harris has been discussing her campaign challenges with this explanation about her inability to get voters to see her as the next president. Telling a group in Des Moines...
1: I have also started to... Perhaps be more candid, talking about what I describe and what I believe to be the elephant in the room about my campaign. What is that? Electability. What do you mean? Electability. You know, essentially, is America ready for a woman and a woman of color to be president of the United States?
0: I can't believe... States States is the final word that she said. I can't believe she's playing the reason I'm 1% in the polls is because I'm a black woman. I just, I, I, I find that amazing. I still say, and I'll always believe this, Barack Obama got more votes because he was black, not less. Yes. It was a help to him. Hillary Clinton got more votes because she was a woman than if she had been a white male. Indisputable. It helped her. Correct. And Kamala Harris would be in the same situation. Now, Pete Buttigieg being gay, I'm not sure on that one. I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. think most people care. But then that uh, that black congressman came out in South Carolina the other day, and he said a lot of black people aren't going to vote for a gay guy. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know overall, but this this whole you know it's amazing I overcame being a woman. No, that helped you. If anything, it helped you. At worst, it was a break even. So quit playing that card. And how? But can,
1: then I would have to come to terms with my other failure. Yeah, how here?
0: can no candidate ever just think, yeah, you know, people don't like my, my policies or me or something? And it's just so weak to blame it on being a black woman. God, it's sad. Do you think she actually believes that?
1: Mm, um, she might have deluded herself into believing it To Hillary... protect her ego like, I'm, like I was describing Hillary seems to believe that being a woman held her back Are oh, yeah. you kidding me? Oh yeah. You
0: think you got less votes because you're a
2: female Give yes. me a break Yes, yes When the world champion Washington Nationals Visited the White House First baseman Ryan Zimmerman Gave President Trump a Nats jersey With Trump's name on it And the number 45 Anyone on to say Mr. President, me and my teammates First of all, I'd like to thank you for having us here. This is, uh, this is an incredible honor that I think all of us will, will, never, will never forget. And uh, We'd also like to thank you for keeping everyone here safe in our country. Um, and continuing to make America the greatest country to live in the world. There you go. That's a Trump fan right there. Now he's endorsing Trump and all of his policies. He shouldn't have gone to the White House. Blah, blah, blah. Hey,
0: back to what we were talking about with impeachment earlier and the whistleblower and why is that still a thing. Looking at a Monmouth poll, um, this is of Republicans. Only 41% of Republicans say Trump did nothing wrong at all in the phone call. So the majority think he did. Mm -hmm. Uh, About half say some actions may be improper but not impeachable. Only 12% support impeachment or the impeachment inquiry. So, a lot of Republicans say, yeah, he probably shouldn't have said that, and uh, probably not a good thing, but uh, now you can't impeach him.
1: Oh, I have an idea. I think the House ought to draw up articles of impeachment and refer them to the Senate for a trial. Until then, leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Just leave me alone. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's your news. (laughs) I'm Marshall Phillips, the Armstrong and Getty Show, The Conscience of the Nation.
0: So we're talking about Tim Sandifer, Tim the lawyer we've had on the show for many, many, many years. We're going to have him coming up in another segment. I want to talk to him a little bit about uh, uh, libertarianism, freedom, that sort of stuff. Fitting it in with the news of the day.
1: I think I might be able to provoke him into changing your mind and your life, the way you see this country. uh, Through my deft uh, manipulation of the boy, I will cause him to say something you will remember for the rest of your days. Wow. Actually, I'll just ask him to and he'll do it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show.
1: Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show.
0: Hey there, we're talking with Tim the Lawyer, Tim Sandifer, who is uh, joining us on the Armstrong and Getty Show, as he has for 13 years, he claims, uh, which is a long time. Started as a caller.
3: Fact check. Back when you used to have calls. That's right, yeah. Of course, that was also because they hadn't yet invented text messaging, so.
0: You uh, consider yourself a libertarian. Yes. And um, so I wanted to ask you this. We were talking about this earlier. There was an uh, opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal about the way we... Um, calculate income inequality, which ends up being the talking points for a lot of programs for wealth redistribution. And they use, um, I don't know if you heard us talking about it, but this, but the argument was, you take somebody who makes a million dollars and you say, okay, that person has a million dollars. You don't say, well, they actually have $500,000 after taxes. And then you take somebody who makes $4,000 a year and you say, they've got $4,000. You don't actually say, well, they've got $60,000 because that's how much they have after they get all the programs they qualify for. Right. And so we, we're, we're not comparing the the actual realities. And I was just wondering, um, from the libertarian sort of point of view, or or just from a freedom point of view, what the Founding Fathers would have wanted. How much wealth redistribution, hmm, spreading money around, should we be willing to accept? Oh, in
3: principle, none. Uh, In in, in reality. Well... I don't know in, any really in reality to would you say question. would you say none so the the founding fathers were quite clear that uh, as the federalist papers says the the equal protection of unequal ability is the first rule of government and the problem is that if you have a redistributionary state it will not be the equal protection of unequal abilities it will be the unequal protection it will be the it will be taking from some who have justly earned those things or justly own those things and giving them to people who don't and that is inherently a violent act. Confiscation by the state is an inherently violent act, whether it's done politely through the form of bureaucracy or not. In, in the end, what you're talking about is government forcibly taking things that rightly belong to people and giving them to those things to other people in the service of some vision of the ideal state. Now, and you're right about this, this problem of, of calculating inequality. Uh, and it goes further than that, by the way, because a lot of the time we don't measure Where individuals go from those categories, we act as if these people stay in these categories their whole lives, and they don't. People move from one category to another. They go from moderate income to high income over the course of their lives, and these measurements of equality, or of income inequality fail to account for that, and so Mm. it acts as though these are permanent things when they're not. People move from one category to another, and that's how it should be. Freedom is going to end up in unequal results. That's what freedom does, but if you prioritize freedom, then that is not as much a concern. Whereas if you prioritize equality, you're going to sacrifice freedom and in the end, not really get equality because people just aren't fundamentally equal in every respect. So you're going to have to go back and redistribute and redistribute and redistribute. For example, imagine that you have a, a, a marathon and everybody starts out at exactly the same spot. They're not going to end up at the same spot. Some people are going to come in first, second, third, and so forth. Okay, so now you have to sh- shift the the ratios in order to equalize them, right? Make some people start way in the in the back and some people wear leg weights and so forth. And then you run your next race. Once again, they come out unequal. So now you have to go and shift them again. And that's why redistribution never ends. It just has to keep going and going and going and going in order to try and equalize things that are inherently unequal. And each step of that redistribution is a step of coercion and inherently a step of violence Uh, and a commitment of a committing of injustice against people who have not done any unjust thing, taking away my earnings. And giving them to some other person because he's poor, when I'm not at fault for his being poor, means violating my rights, committing an injustice against me.
0: Well, we won't even get to white privilege, which is a whole different conversation, because you'd make that argument that you are to
3: blame. Now, here's another thing, is that inequalities will increase as wealth increases. So let's say that I have $1 and you have $0.50. The inequality is $0.50, right? Now let's double both of our incomes. Now I have $2 and you have $1.00. Well, the inequality has doubled also, right? Because now the inequality is a whole dollar instead of 50 cents. And yet you are twice as, as well off now as you were before. Both of us are vastly wealthier than we were to begin with. Now, where, what does a humane person worry about? A humane person worries about the absolute wealth, worries about lifting poor people from the, the bottom by, by ensuring that they have more wealth. It's the inhumane person who says, oh, no, we can't have that because the inequality has doubled. We don't like that inequality, so we've got to make sure to prevent the inequality. No, your focus is on the wrong thing. You should, be on the, you should be focusing on increasing the wealth, not on making sure everybody is equal. And as Margaret Thatcher famously said, socialists would prefer that people have less in order to ensure that they are more equal. Whereas what what I'm saying is, yeah, they're going to have inequalities, but when people are wealthier, they are better off, even if they aren't as wealthy as Bill Gates or something like that.
1: So many avenues we could discuss on that topic, and I would like to, but we're we'll running a little short of time. And I did promise to change people's lives, which is a hell of a thing to uh-huh. promise on a radio show. Uh, so one of my favorite aspects of talking to you through the years, Tim, is that the uh, the scales have flown from my eyes on a couple of topics. To quote the good book, um. Uh, For instance, the idea that uh, a a government permit, why is the government even being asked to permit me to do something? I'm just going to do it unless I'm hurting someone else. So uh, a lot of our ideas of liberty are upside down right now. What broad principle of liberty do you think has gotten turned on its head in modern America that, People ought to be reminded of.
3: Oh boy, that's a, no, you've said a very good one, which is this idea that whether you're presumptively free, unless there's some good reason to prevent you from being free versus the idea that you are not free unless the government says you are. And what what we have done is we've increasingly transformed into what I call a permission society where you are not presumptively free unless you first get permission to do the thing that you want to do. And there are all sorts of problems with that. One is that we can't really imagine the benefits of any new innovation before somebody introduces and tries that experiment. And the idea of of having to get a government permit assumes that government bureaucracy somehow knows the right answer to something. I mean, I've done lawsuits where I did a case in Kentucky a few years ago where the question was that there's a law that says you're not allowed to run a moving company until you first get a permit from the government. And in order to get a permit, you have to prove that there needs to be a new moving company in the oh. state. Well, how do you prove There there needs to be a move. You can't prove that there's no. And and the idea that the government knows how many moving companies there ought to be in the state of Kentucky. Of course, they don't know the answer to that question. They can't possibly. So it's very dangerous that we've shifted our society from one where you are presumed to be free unless there's some good reason to to limit what you do. Into a society where increasingly you are not free unless you get some form of government permission, and think of all the different things you have to get permission for—everything from building a house to p- owning a gun to owning to, to possessing medicine. That's what a, a, a prescription is—is is a, a government permission slip for you to have a medicine. Hmm. So I, I think that is that overall is is a very good example of how we had a, a really important principle, and and I think most Americans still hold it. But gradually, we're sliding into a society where you are not free unless some bureaucrat approves of what you're doing.
1: Well, and the other aspect of our conversations through the years that has really crystallized in my head that I wish I could convey to other people is this idea that, that the government is, in general, wise and benevolent, and the more government, the better. Um, as opposed to the concept of rent-seeking, for instance, yeah. that the more powerful and rich a government gets, the more awful behavior you're going to
3: get. Because it becomes it becomes economically valuable for me to get the government to do my bidding. So I'm going to invest my time and money to get the government to do that, do what I want them to. So that's why you have these repeat players of powerful private interests that use the government to profit themselves, whereas newcomers who don't have that kind of political influence, they can't obtain that. And so everybody talks about with government wealth redistribution as if it's, going to cure problems when all that does is it that power is going to fall into the hands of the politically effective, the politically powerful, and and it's not going to to be exercised to benefit those who are most needy or most deserving. And this presumption that government is made up of angels is just amazing. There's this, a new story I was reading just this morning about this guy named Ibram Kendi who published a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. That all the oh, is, yeah, I've been fun. talking about
0: this. This yeah. is a big deal and one of the most dangerous things that's happened in decades.
3: And his big proposal is we have a government bureaucracy that, he, in his words, literally governs absolutely everything to ensure that it's anti-racist, whatever that means. Well,
0: you're either racist or anti-racist. There's no such thing as I'm not a racist.
3: And government bureaucracy is going to ensure that everything is anti-racist. Now, even aside from the vagueness of the definitions and all those sorts of problems, he just seems to assume that government is going to act in an anti-racist fashion, as if government is staffed by angels, which... If anything has there has there ever been an example of it doing that? I mean, if anything, it's been exactly the reverse throughout all of recorded history. <laughs> and yet we assume that and Jefferson in his first inaugural address has this great line where he says, Sometimes we are told that govern that people cannot be trusted to govern their own lives. Have we found angels in the forms of kings to govern us? Of course we haven't. So if you're if we haven't found angels in the forms of kings to govern us then, then why would we trust the government with more power? If people can't be trusted to run their own lives and make their own decisions, then they certainly can't be given power with, to, to govern other people and run their lives and make decisions for them. If I'm not if I'm not smart enough or or moral enough to run my own life, then why in the world should I have power to run your life? It should be just the opposite. And yet this this presumption, the leftist presumption typically, although you also find it among conservatives quite a lot, this presumption that people cannot be left to run their own lives is then wedded to this sort of mystical notion that somehow government bureaucracy is going to be staffed by perfect people who aren't biased, who aren't looking out for their own private interest and who aren't going to do the bidding of their Cronies and their friends.
1: And other than all of human history, they have an argument. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: I mean, the most racist societies in the world, the most polluted societies in the world, the poorest societies in the world, the most oppressive societies in the world, the most discriminatory, these are all collectivist societies environmentalists think that government is going to act in some, in some fashion to protect the earth against evil greedy capitalism well if that's true, why are the dirtiest places on the planet, the places with the weakest property rights and the biggest government the, Soviet, the former Soviet Union is a toxic wasteland, China is a toxic wasteland, and the government is in charge of everything there, so if government is going to, to, to pr- protect the earth against the evils of the profit motive, it hasn't worked there why would we assume that it would work here when in fact, even in the United States the government was responsible for everything from the extinction of the buffalo to the extinction of the Oo o bird of Hawaii. These were, things were all done by government authorities who had didn't have to answer for profit motives, didn't have to answer for, for the, the safety of private property. Mm-hmm. As Aristotle said 2,000 years ago, that which is owned by nobody has the least amount of care bestowed upon it. Well said. Tim Sandford,
1: Vice President of Litigation for the Goldwater Institute. Uh, you will have a link to all of his books and that sort of thing if you want to read them, and you probably should, Tim. It's always a pleasure.
3: Thanks. Go to timthelawyer.com for more. There timthelawyer.com,
0: and you're headed over to Berkeley to lecture those people about yeah, I'm something. Yeah,
3: speaking at UC Berkeley in a few hours. Mm-hmm. God, I hope you don't get pelted with rocks and garbage. Yeah, I might stop at the cathedral on the way and say a few. Uh,
1: couldn't hurt. <laughs> right? <laughs> What's the downside? Armstrong and Getty.
0: sent off today.